So I would like to ask you to turn there, and we're going to look at this text this morning and allow uh, David to unfold what I consider to be an amazing truth. And, and we read the psalm this morning, but the part of the, the psalm that, that riveted my attention was the question in verse 4, what is man that you are mindful of him? What is the son of man that you care for him? What is it about this creature and this part of your creation that has so arrested your heart and so focused itself in your, your thinking? And, and I think that question this morning is worthy of exploration. Would you pray with me as we ask the Lord to help us? Father, as we come now to this text and as we ask for your help in unfolding it, Lord, we pray that your spirit would have uh, just incredible opportunity in each of our hearts to open our eyes so that we would see the, the beauty that you have placed here as we read this text and as you apply it to our life. Lord, I need help this morning in unfolding it, and I need help along with my brothers and sisters this morning in receiving this truth in my own life. And so, Lord, we ask that you would give us this good gift and that your spirit would enable us to see it and not just to understand it intellectually, but to embrace it personally, that we may grow into the image uh, of your son in whose name we pray, amen. I wanna begin by asking a question and I want you to think about this for just a moment. If you had to think back over the course of recorded history, and think over what you know about that history, Uh, different individuals that over uh, the the history of our race have have risen to prominence, who have left their mark, their name for good or for evil uh, in the record of our story, and, and, and they would come to your mind. If you had to go back through the history of our race and think through all of the people that you would know who would you pick or what, what footprint would you say that has been left by one of those men would be the most significant footprint ever left by a human being other than the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's boundary him out. But, but if you had to think of a footprint that, that one of those individuals left, which footprint would you have in mind? And I want to give you a second to think about that. And uh, because I think it ties into what we're talking about this morning. All right, how many of you have an individual in your mind? How many of you have a footprint? All right, okay. I'm going to ask our, our our sound crew if they would put up the uh, the picture here. How many of you had that boot print in your mind? How many of you had that in your mind? How many of you know what that is? That that boot print was made 50 years ago in 1969 when the first man, first member of our race, Neil Armstrong, put his foot on the surface of the moon, and he left that boot print. Now, this is the 50th year anniversary of that event, and there are all kinds of things that are swirling about that event, and uh, my understanding is that, that if you could actually go to the moon, you could still see that footprint preserved in that very same way as you're seeing it there today. Now, here's my question. How many of you were alive when that footprint was made? Okay. I was alive back then, barely. But if you were alive, hold your hand up. I want you to see. Okay. Look around. 
This is where all the, the this is where all the wisdom in the room resides. <laughs> all right. Now, <clears throat> what I didn't know about this footprint that that you probably knew if you were there uh, when, or if you were live when it was made was that that this event was actually televised. This was sort of like the golden coming of age of television. And and for some of you who are a little bit younger, you, you won't be able to relate to this. But back in the, in the late 60s, television was actually a, a piece of furniture in your living room. And you probably can go to your grandmother's house, or your great-grandmother's house, and there's this sort of long uh, sort of piece of furniture with this little tiny screen, and then there were these two sort of rabbit ears that would come up, and, and you had this little tuner thing that you could do, and, and you're, you had about four channels to pick from, and your little brother was the channel changer. Your dad would tell him to go up and change a channel, and he'd change a channel. And, and, and so this event was actually televised, and, and some half a billion people watched this footprint being made some 240,000 miles away from the surface of the earth. Now, here's my second question. Is there anybody here this morning that actually watched that televised event? Can I see your hands? All right, now look around. These are the pillars of the church, <laughs> for sure. I mean, think about that moment. Think, think about what that footprint symbolizes and what, what it implies about our race. Think about the immense about, uh, amount of, of skill and ability and knowledge and insight and wisdom that was required to go into all of the events and all of the science and, and all of the engineering that were required to get that footprint on the surface of the moon and to bring the man and those with him who made that footprint back again to the surface of the earth. And the question this morning is this, how did, how did a race that found its way to the moon lose its way so radically on the face of our own planet? I mean, all you have to do is, is look around as, as we have been singing this morning the story of creation. And as we've talked about that big story over the weekend, all you have to do is look around on the surface of our planet and you immediately discover the effects of that moment in our history where our first parents turned away from the words of God and they plunged our entire race into brokenness and death and damage and, and despair. And it's all around us. I mean, you can pick any, any, any arena of society. You can go anywhere on the planet. You can go anywhere among the cultures that make up the human race, and you can find this damage. You can find this despair. You can find this disease. You can find this death. So how did a race that found its way to the moon lose its way on our planet? And more importantly, what is the question that David is asking have to do with that? And so I want David to unpack this for us as we trace what he has written in the psalm. And, and I want to begin this morning with an observation, and that is this. David is actually recognizing something about man. He is recognizing man's significance. He, he is asking a profound question here. He's saying to the Lord, what is man? Why is it that this part of your creation has actually attracted your attention. He's asking the question that Job asked 
in the seventh chapter of, of his book when he said, what is man that thou shouldest magnify him and that thou shouldest set thine heart upon him? God, why is this part of your creation always on your mind? Why is it always in your heart? Now, David is not asking this question out of nowhere. There's a context out of which this question arrives, and and it is something that David has been giving profound consideration to. There is an observation that David makes in verse 3 that gives rise to the question. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, David is looking at, at God's handiwork. Psalm 19 describes the, the, the glory of, of the heavens and the fact that the heavens are the handiwork of God. And in Psalm 19, the sun becomes the illustration of that beauty and that grandeur and, and really of the message that creation is constantly proclaiming that there is a God and that he is present and that he is powerful and that he has immense skill and ability. And David is looking at this creation in this case. He's looking at the moon and the stars Maybe thinking back to a time as a shepherd watching over his father's flock or maybe even as the shepherd king over God's own flock, Israel, looking up perhaps at at a uh, star-filled sky and, and seeing the beauty of the moon and observing the grand, majestic creation of God, singular in its origin, spectacular in its design. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to be in, 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 and to experience some immense vision or some immense view of some majestic part of God's creation. How many of you have ever been to the Grand Canyon? I mean, I'll never forget the first time I went to the Grand Canyon, even in a fallen world, even the product of, of a, a flood that came as a worldwide judgment of God. Here is a, a majestic, stellar display of, of, of what God has done in his creation. I remember driving up. I'd heard about the Grand Canyon all my life, and I drove up uh, with a group that I was with, and we got to the south rim, and I stood there, and I looked down into this immense canyon, and, and I was stunned. I was breathtaking by that. Anybody ever been to the Rocky Mountains? I remember taking my wife, we were doing a couples conference, and uh, I had flown over the Rocky Mountains. I'd actually been to Denver. Uh, I'd seen the Rocky Mountains, but this time I was with Beth, and we were actually going up into those mountains to do uh, a couples conference at a retreat center up on one of the sides of one of those mountains. And I can remember driving up through those mountains, and I was overwhelmed by what I was seeing. I was driving, and I was sort of looking up through the windshield to try to see the mountains. And and Beth looks over, and she goes, why don't you just drive and let me look at the mountains for both of us? (laughs) We actually drove through the mountains in a tunnel. It, it It was stunning. And then we got up to the retreat, and and uh, walked in, and the entire back wall of that whole place was glass. It was a, one huge window. And I remember standing, looking at that window, and, and I had my suitcase and Bess, and I just, I just put them down, and I stood there, and all I could say was, wow. It was stunning. 
How many of you have ever been to Niagara Falls? Early on in our marriage, Beth had the opportunity uh, to go speak at a conference, and, and she had the opportunity to go to Niagara Falls, and it was one of the few places she had been that I had not. And so for most of our marriage, it was sort of a little place where, where she could sort of say, well, now I've been to Niagara Falls, and somebody else hasn't. So last year, I was preaching for a pastor in New York, and he picked me up at the airport, and he said, by the way, Niagara Falls is about 20 miles from here. Would you like to go? I said, Pastor, it would be such a blessing in my marriage if I could go. (laughs) So we went to Niagara Falls. If you've ever been to Niagara Falls, you stand there. I remember standing at the railing, and maybe from here to the fourth row back, there are hundreds of thousands of gallons of water pouring over that fall constantly. The mist is coming up. You, you can see the beauty of all of that. You, you, can, you can hear the mighty roar of those waters. And I don't know about you, when I see a, 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 a jaw-dropping sight like Niagara Falls or the Rocky Mountains or the Grand Canyon, I feel very what? Very small. David is looking at spectacular, singular evidences of God's creative ability, and he is coming to the exact opposite conclusion. He is looking at all of this grandeur and all of this beauty, and he is recognizing that the most spectacular thing that God has done is in the creation of man. And he wants to know what is man that that you give such attention and such glory and such honor to. This is observed in a profound consideration, but if we're on the right track, and this is actually how David is thinking, then there ought to be some evidences in the psalm that confirm that. And so that's exactly what happens in in verses 5 through 8. This is all established by divine confirmation. Notice how David expresses this. You have made him, man, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You made him just a little lower than himself. He crowned man. Lord, you you crowned him with a share of your own glory and honor. You have given to him dominion and authority over all the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. By the way, do you see that little phrase in verse 6? You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. What works of God's hand was David looking at in verse 3? The moon and the stars. Do you think it ever occurred to David all those centuries ago that there would come a day when a fellow member of his race would literally put his foot on the surface of the moon that he was thinking about in verse 3? It's a stunning You have given to him dominion and authority over all of the works of your hands. And then you have placed him over every sphere of creation and over every creature in those spheres. Look at verse 6. You have given him dominion over the works of your hand. You have put all things under his feet. And he starts naming the spheres, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and whatever passes along the paths of the seas. 
I don't know uh, what, what your particular tastes are. I grew up in South Texas, and, and during my growing up years, I was introduced to the world's best hamburger. <clears throat> are you guys hamburger fans? Any, any hamburger connoisseurs here? I mean, there, there are a lot of really cool places to get hamburgers, but the coolest place of them all is, is this place in Texas, uh, close to where I grew up. And I can remember as a kid, we'd go into this, uh, this place, a fast food restaurant. We'd go in there, and I could still see that hamburger coming across the counter in this yellow sort of waxy paper. And I can, I can remember, I can see it now, opening that up, and, and there it is, the size of a small hubcap. It's, it's greasy, it's, it's dripping, and, and you eat it, and it is, it is absolutely delicious. And when you get done, this is what you say. What a burger. And that's the name of the chain, Whataburger. And they're in, in South Texas. So if you're ever down that way, you can you stop in and get the world's greatest burger. But if you can't get to Texas, the second best burger in the world is also out west. It's, it's a little outfit called In-N-Out Burger. Anybody ever eaten at an In-N-Out Burger? I can see your hand. Yes, amen. I, I love In-N-Out Burger. I have the t-shirt. I have the hat. I'm getting the socks for Christmas this year. It's an amazing place. Um, I'm, I'm into that place. I mean, I, 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 there's a hidden website that you can go on, and they've got like the secret menu. And if you know what the secret menu is, you actually can order it when you go in there. It's, it's an amazing experience. Um, I was preaching out in California and found my way to an In-N-Out burger, and I was eating my burger with whoever was with me. And this elderly gentleman who was working there at In-N-Out Burger came up, and he was sort of taking care of people. He, he would make sure, you know, ask you if you needed a refill. Really, really kind gentleman, and so we started talking. And I was curious, asked him sort of how he got there, and, and he had retired. He was lonely and uh, decided, I, 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 don't, I just don't want to sit at home. So he came down and got a part-time job, and, and that's what he did. And so I asked him, I said, well, what did, what did you do for a living before you, you did this? And he said, I, I trained whales. He worked for um, an outfit called SeaWorld. Many of you may be familiar with SeaWorld. And apparently, at one time, they had a number of whales that they would use in their, in their shows. And he was one of the trainers. And so I'm sitting there with my hamburger kind of looking at him going, I've never met a person who's trained a whale. So I had a question. I, I don't know what you would ask if you were in that situation, but I wanted to know how you train a whale. Not that I planned to do it. I, I just was curious. So I asked him, how do you train a whale? He said, well, you get a, a, you get a long stick or you get a long pole and you put it at the bottom of the pool and you get on the other side of the whale and you wave something at the whale that he likes to eat. And when he swims over, you give him that treat, and then you just keep raising the bar until eventually that whale is, is sort of jumping out of the water over the bar, and, and that's how you train a whale. And, and I was, I almost didn't finish my burger. I was stunned. I was like, never in all of my born days would I have thought of that. But here's somebody who figured out and actually was involved in the training of, of a creature that passes through the deepest parts of the sea. Now think about this. In the space of the time that we've been together, you have seen a footprint left by a fellow member of our race on the surface of the moon. And I just told you the story about another fellow member of our race who trained a creature who makes its paths 
through the deepest parts of the sea. So David is right. Whatever God is doing with this creature, man, it is stunning. It is of great significance. And so that brings us really to the second question that that David directs our attention to, and that is this. Why is man so significant in God's sight? What is the reason for this significance? And and you can find the answer to that in verse 1 and in verse 9 of the text. Notice how, how David begins the psalm. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. And then look at verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. There, there is an incredible name and character and person of God. And we know it. We, you are our God in contrast to all of the gods, the no gods of the nations. You alone are our God. And we know the, the beauty and the majesty of who you are. But look at verse 1. You have set all of this, your glory, who you are and what you're like. You, you have set all of this above the heavens. And so as you think about the reason for man's significance, you notice immediately that God has placed his glory above the heavens And and how is anyone on the earth ever going to know the truth about who God is and what he is like? Creation tells us that he exists and that he's amazingly powerful and that he's incredibly wise and skillful. But how are we going to know who he is and what he is really like? How are we going to know this majestic name? You have put your glory in the heaven, but you want your name to be magnified throughout all the earth. How how is God going to accomplish that? And, And you know exactly how God accomplished that. He made two image bearers. And he put them in a garden temple. And they had full and free and personal access to the beauty of God and to the person of God and to the nature of God. They saw God with an unveiled face. There was, there was nothing prohibiting the fellowship. And to these two amazing image bearers, God gave a mission. You are to fill up this entire earth with more image bearers. God gave to these image bearers an ability, a a privilege, a right that no other part of creation had, and that was to make more image bearers, more people in the image of God in order that they might know God and they may celebrate God, they may worship God, they may enjoy his goodness forever, magnify his name and exalt his glory And this was the plan. And that brings us really to the third thing in our text this morning, and that is this. Obviously, something went incredibly wrong with this plan, correct? There's a response to all of this in verse 2. There is an incredible destructive moment that comes into all of this. And you can see the evidence of that even to this day because our, our first parents, 
the two image bearers that God created and placed as sovereigns under his rule over all of the earth indeed filled up the entire planet with image bearers. I mean, all you have to do is look around our planet and there's some seven billion of us living on this planet. But do those image bearers know the beauty and the majesty and and the incredible joy of God's name? And the answer to that is evident, correct? It's not. They don't know that name. How majestic is your name in all of the earth? And now there's an earth filled with image bearers who don't know that name or who refuse to recognize that name or because of the darkness in their own heart, they they exchange the glory of that name for the foolish darkness of, of idolatry. I mean, think about how many people on our planet some of the most highly educated of them have come to conclude that that God doesn't exist at all. There is no God. You and I call these people atheists. And they occupy the most learned positions on our planet. They, They sit in the seats of power and of influence and they mock and they scorn at the idea of God. Then there's a whole another group of image bearers who have come to believe that maybe there is a God and it probably is a good idea if there would be such a person, but we can never know for sure and we certainly can't know this God if he or she exists in any kind of a personal way. And you and I call these people agnostics. And then in addition to them, there are entire continents, billions of image bearers on this planet who have come to conclude that the idea of God is not only good, it's necessary, but it's not limited to one. And they have fallen down and worshiped as Romans talks about things that that creep and crawl and, and, and walk on four limbs and even on two legs on this planet. And they have made images of them and have called them their gods. And even among those who have come to believe that there is a God, and he is the true God, and he is the only God, they have radically wrong ideas about who he is like and who he is and what he is like. So how does God resolve all of this? There is opposition from an ancient enemy that has brought all of this about. Notice verse 2, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. There's the first inkling in the psalm that this immense, glorious, majestic plan of God is going to be opposed. There are foes that are standing against this. And, And so David says, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy. So there is an enemy behind all of this, and then he's identified for you. He is the avenger. There is an ancient enemy of God who has been incited by by envy and wrath and jealousy that an image bearer lower than him would be given the right by God to rule in his stead and has set on a course throughout the entire history of our race to destroy this image bearer, to deface this image bearer, to defile him, and to distance and separate him forever from the creator. 
and he has been extremely successful. So how does God resolve this? And and you read in verse two about a strength that has been put in the mouth of babies and infants. And when those babies and infants, whoever they are, use that strength, whatever it is, it stops this ancient enemy in its tracks. And it reverses what he has done. So as we close this morning, what is that strength and who are those infants? And to answer those questions, we need to go to two passages in our New Testament where the writers of our New Testament refer back to this psalm. And the first of those is in a very familiar passage that you celebrate at Easter. In Matthew chapter 21, it's the Sunday, or we we call it Palm Sunday, but it's that occasion where Jesus is coming to Jerusalem at the beginning of the final week of his life. And, And Matthew begins to record this in a way that is intended to get you to see something about Jesus that the people around him recognize. And for time's sake, let me summarize the story. The first part of the story, beginning in verse 1 and going all the way down to verse 10, is the part of the story where Jesus is coming, and as he approaches Jerusalem, he instructs his disciples to go and find a donkey. And they bring the donkey, and they put Jesus on the donkey, and then they start saying things to Jesus and about Jesus. And Matthew puts sort of like the story on pause because he wants you to pick up on something. He says this in verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, verse 5, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of a burden. And so the crowds in verse 9 that went before and that followed began shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. These are messianic titles. They are ascribing messianic praise and messianic recognition to this individual who is riding on that beast. They are, they are actually recognizing that he is the long-awaited, anointed, appointed champion that we heard about for the first time in Genesis 3 and that we've been tracing through the entire Old Testament. And here are people on a road to Jerusalem and they are recognizing he is that champion. And word gets back to the city and the city is amazed and they want to know the identity of this anointed, appointed champion. Who is he? Verse 10, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus, the one from Nazareth of Galilee. And then he immediately goes to the temple and he drives out all who sell and buy and the money changers. And he, and he makes an astonishing statement. It is written, my house. He is claiming this place. My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And then Matthew pauses the story again, and he gives you a little detail. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. This is exactly what the Old Testament prophesied would happen when Messiah would come. The the blind would see, and the lame would leap for joy. And so all of this is going on. And then in verse 15, when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, the amazing things that he did, and the children, 
crying out in the temple and, and, the, and what's coming out of their mouth is this identification and celebration of the true identity of Jesus. Hosanna to the son of David. They are remembering what their parents said on the road earlier. And the chief priests are incensed. They were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. That's a stunning answer. Yes. And then he has a question of his own. Have you never read? These are the scribes. These are the custodians of the law. Have you never read? Of course you've read. And then he quotes Psalm 8, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have perfected praise. And so this praise that's coming out of their mouth is their strength. It is the identification and the celebration of God's anointed, appointed champion who has come to crush the head of this ancient enemy. And his name is Jesus. And that leaves us with one final question. Quickly this morning, go to Hebrews chapter 2, because if, if we've identified the strength that has come in the person and work of an anointed, appointed champion, Jesus, then who are the children that are supposed to talk about that? And as you come to Hebrews chapter 2, we are, are thrust right into a discussion in chapter 2 about the subjugation, the subjection of all of creation. And, and the writer of Hebrews is saying, it wasn't to angels that this was given. It wasn't to angels that God subjected the world to come, verse 5, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, and then he quotes Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You put everything in subjection under his feet. And then in verse 8, last part of verse 8, you left nothing outside of his control. And then the writer of Hebrews says this, at the present moment, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We don't see this yet, but we have seen something. And what we have seen is in verse 9, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for every man. And then the writer of Hebrews says this was appropriate. It was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And then this anointed champion begins talking in verse 12. I will tell of your name. Remember Psalm 8, verse 1 and verse 9? Your majestic name throughout the earth. I will tell of that name. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, the assembly, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given to me. So who are the children? Who have come to this recognition? Who are the many sons that God is bringing to glory through this anointed, appointed champion? And I would suggest to you that I am talking to a room full of them this morning. You say, well, that's great. <clears throat> so what does all this have to do with me? Well, let me ask you this. Do you believe that David and Matthew are telling you the truth? 
Do you believe that the writer of Hebrews is telling you the truth, that there is an anointed, appointed champion who has come in strength, and that God has visited us through him to take away the sting of death, to take away the penalty of our sins, and to crush the head of this ancient enemy? Do you believe that the writers of Scripture are actually telling you the truth? That's question number one. Question number two, have you personally appropriated this truth yourself? Has this anointed, appointed champion become your personal anointed, appointed champion? For many years, I pastored a church like this in Milwaukee. And there was a period of time in that church where God began to do some unusual things. People would come and, and, and just by the drove started to visit our church and, and you could tell they were not Baptists. One of the first, I would stand in the back after uh, the service was over and people would come by and they would say something like this, nice mass, Father. That was your first clue they weren't Baptists. So Milwaukee, Lutheran, um, German Lutheran, and, and, uh, and Roman Catholic, very, very active. And they would keep coming. They would come and, and it usually would take nine to 12 months, maybe a little longer, and, and they, would, they would be, I'd be back in the back, and they would, they would come back, and they would say, hey, pastor, they figured out I was a pastor. Hey, pastor, could, could we have a cup of coffee this week? And I always knew what we were going to talk about. And sure enough, we'd find our way to a Panera Bread or, or a, a Dunn Brothers coffee, or we'd hang out at a Starbucks, and the conversation would, would always go this way. It, it would, some version of this. Pastor, I have been coming to church my entire life. My family grew up in church. We have been, for crying out loud, we're creasters. You know what a creaster is? Somebody goes to church at Christmas and Easter, and they call themselves creasters. This is a real term. We're creasters. And I know the story of Jesus. I've heard it my whole life, but I never understood that it was for me. And we had the privilege as a church of seeing scores of men and women come to this realization that the gospel they grew up knowing was actually for them. And I don't know who you are this morning, but maybe you've been coming for a while and the Spirit of God has been opening your eyes and you've begun to realize this, this thing called the gospel that I've been hearing is, is, is not just a story and it's not just like this religious tradition that I grew up with. It's something that I need personally. And if that's you this morning, I would encourage you to do what those people did. Just catch Pastor Brent or any one of the members in this church and say, whatever, whatever that guy up there talked about, I, I want to have a cup of coffee over that. And then finally this, as you have embraced that, are you doing what these children did? Are you doing what the children in the temple were doing? Are you looking around at people in your neighborhood, people that you work with, people whose lives have been ruined and broken, whose marriages are, are crumbling? And, and, and have you said to them in your own way, I know a name that can fix that. I, I know a name that can recover that. I know a name that can, can restore that. I, I know a, game, a name that can forgive that. And his name is Jesus. Father, thank you for a psalm this morning that ties so deeply into the fabric of the entire story that you are doing and, and especially to the part of the story where you reach down to redeem us so that we might know 
your name. So that we might be released from the penalties of our sins. Rescued from the danger of hell. Redeemed from the bondage and the slavery of sin. Reconciled as brothers and family members to you. And all that has been broken and marred and damaged and destroyed. Lord, in this life is progressively being made right in our lives as we submit to your word. And one day will be fully restored because of the work of your anointed, appointed champion, whose name is Jesus. And we are his brothers and his sisters this morning. And we have nothing to say to you, but thank you for that. And I pray this morning that if there are those whose eyes are being opened by your spirit, that you would draw them by the beauty of this message of your son to come to that place where he would be their own champion and their own anointed Messiah that you have sent to redeem them from their sins. And we'll thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.